When Susie King Taylor asked the lieutenant if she should write her story, he was emphatic. Go ahead, and I will give you all the assistance you may need, whenever you require it. Taylor wasn't used to that kind of support. All her life, she had to earn it. She was born as a slave in Liberty, Georgia in 1848, the oldest of nine children. Her slave owner's wife loved having the kids in the house, and she'd bring Taylor into her warm bed when her husband was away on business. But the moment he came home, Taylor was sent to the floor. It was a fitting start to the pattern that she faced her entire life. When you read her personal story, you are just overwhelmed at her grit. She had to fight, claw, and strategize her way to fulfill her ambition. What Susie King Taylor really wanted more than anything else was to become educated. She first learned the value of education from her grandma, who sent her to two different secret teachers. It was a huge gamble. At this time in Georgia, the law threatened anybody who taught slaves to read, and many were hung if caught. We went every day about nine with our books wrapped in paper so as to prevent the police and white persons from seeing them. In no time, it became apparent that Taylor's natural intellect was rare. Truthfully, her teachers could not keep up. But that did not stop her from learning more. About this time, Taylor began to hear more and more about those darn Yankees in the North, and she wanted so badly to see them, to see if the rumors were true. The white men would tell all the black children that if they ever went up north, the Yankees would harness them to carts and make them pull the carts around instead of the horses. That's scary stuff for a child. Until one day, Taylor's grandma pointed out some signs in town. It was southern propaganda. A rattlesnake depicting the north saying, Don't touch me, I will strike. You can read those signs, can't you? said her grandma. Taylor's grandma knew she could read. After all, she was the one to make sure of it. Taylor nodded. Well, they're all lies. Later, Taylor took refuge from America's bloodiest war by traveling to a nearby island. En route, she met a Union officer in charge. He was surprised by my accomplishments, for they were such for those days said he had no idea there were any slaves in the South that knew how to read or write. So he asked her to teach the 40 children at the local school, and soon adults came too. They came to me by nights, some of them so eager to learn, to learn to read above anything else. Susie King Taylor was only 14 years old. There was no anger in her heart at this request, no retelling of all the hurt, the prejudice, the abuse that she'd seen. She'd have been justified, of course. But instead, this girl gathered white men and women who were much older than she. She drew a circle that let them in and taught them to read. After all, she knew in her heart how hard it was. Eventually, she joined the war effort herself, 
At first, she was called as a laundress. That's all they wanted from her, scrubbing the pants of men who had lost their legs. And it was done over a tub with more blood than water. Taylor had so much more to give, though. It was soon discovered that she could read, and doctors, well, if that's what you could call them in that era, they needed the help which meant close proximity to the deadliest diseases before science knew how to prevent them. Typhoid, cholera, measles. I was not one bit afraid of the smallpox. I had been vaccinated and I drank sassafras tea constantly, which prevented me from contracting this dreaded scourge. Sassafras tea? Maybe. I think it was because the diseases knew they did not stand a chance against her. Best find a more timid host. As the war dragged on, the number of soldiers were running out. That's the nature of war, after all. So Taylor helped the infantry in battle. Rifle shots whistled overhead as she took apart firearms, cleaned them, and then reassembled them for soldiers. Seconds could save or sacrifice a life. I learned to handle a musket very well and could shoot straight and often hit my target. I thought that great fun. But just because others recognized her mind and talent didn't mean that she was treated fairly, not by a long shot, which is what blows my mind. There was literally no tangible reward for her continued effort. She was learning for the sake of learning. In this land of the free, we are burned, tortured, and denied a fair trial, murdered for any imaginary wrong conceived in the brain of any slave-hating white man. Each morning, you could hear of some slave being lynched. Despite the savage conditions, she continued to learn. She had found a way not to be defined by these prejudices, but actually benefit from them. How? One reason is what learning experts call cognitive disfluency, or cognitive roadblocks that make learning more difficult. Now, disfluency shows up in a variety of ways, like forcing someone to write their thoughts or making the font smaller so the reader has to exert their eyes. In Susie King Taylor's case, It showed up through racist norms and a lack of formal guidance. Where most researchers are continuously examining ways to make learning easier, Adam Alter at New York University took an entirely different route. His work shows that cognitive disfluency prompts people to process information more carefully, deeply, and abstractly. Now, that bucks the trend for most of us lethargic learners. Check out this questionnaire that two researchers designed. Go ahead and answer these questions out loud. What do we call a tree that grows from acorns? Oak. What do we call a funny story? Joke. What sound does a frog make? Croak. What is another word for a cape? cloak. What do we call the white part of an egg? Well, the obvious answer isn't so obvious. If your response was egg whites or even albumin, 
Well, congratulations, you're part of a small minority. You can step forward and join the likes of Susie King Taylor. The rest of us instinctively respond with yolk, which is the yellow part of an egg, not the white part, because the rhyming pattern is simply too dominant to dismiss. It's too fluent, and our brains go into autodrive. What we need, then, is something that wakes us up, that forces a reinvestment of our executive thinking, which brings us to our microbehavior. Are you ready? Here it is. The power of pen to paper. Writing is one of the best forms of disfluency because it forces us to use our hands, our eyes, our mind. When we really want to go deeper, to codify our experiences, we need to make it just a bit harder on the brain. Rustling it out of the warm sheets on a cold morning. Don't bug me, it'll say. It's the weekend, or I've been working hard for you, just give me a few more minutes. And your brain's not lying. If you've listened to our other episodes, you'll remember how often we discuss system two thinking. This is the deliberate and conscious mental process that requires effortful energy. It's very different than system one, which is fast and automatic. We're often unaware it's even happening as the brain quickly assesses a situation and delivers updates. The estimates are that we spend more than 95% of our day in system one. That's the kind of thinking that's sleeping in in bed. Unless you're someone like Susie King Taylor. Think of all those times that she had to reinvent herself, recommit to learning something new when everything in her surroundings was making it more difficult. You want to learn how to really nail the presentation? You want to understand why you're so angry about that last conversation? Perhaps you just want to clarify what you just read in the last spreadsheet. Make it just a little harder. Write it down. Years ago, I started a training company with a few friends, and we knew how important this principle was. We did endless research on it. You remember more. Yep. You connect higher processing neurons and more of them. Yep. You use motor and visual and cognitive resources. All of that's true. But almost always, at the end, someone would raise their hand and say, can't I just type it out? That'll be much faster. Sure, we'd say. You just won't get the same outcome. Then we'd go over the science and again explain, you see, you're trying to get speed with simplicity. We're trying to create depth with disfluency. I got frustrated, to be honest, confused. Why was it so hard? So what did I do? Well, I practiced what I was preaching. I took a small moment in the car and wrote. And in that session, I wrote that we are writing by longhand to objectify our reality. Literally, to create objects that symbolize what we mean, feel, think, know, and hopefully, if we're lucky, come to understand. It provides context for what is otherwise a very complicated process within those three pounds of sacred tissue in our heads. There's one more thing that cognitive disfluency does that, well, it's totally unexpected. It makes us more empathetic. 
Sure, cognitive disfluency helps us go deeper, but it also helps us see deeper. Instead of making quick assumptions of people, those who are accustomed to disfluency are more willing to challenge stereotypes and even reconsider their own biases. Now, that's something that Taylor understood. Just after the 103rd New York company heard the fateful call to fall in, they were ushered on to begin a surprise attack. Taylor walked with them a ways. How could she not? They were her friends, her boys. Each step was a painful moment because she knew what awaited them. At four o'clock, the cannons roared. Susie listened for another four hours until the first of the wounded arrived. They had been wading through thick marshes and muddy pits that left them stuck, unable to move, vulnerable. Truly, they were easy target practice for the enemy. The only way out was to cut off their clothes. And even then, too many arrived back at camp without their limbs. Taylor searched the meager rations for anything to help the wounded. What they really wanted was soup. But she didn't have that. She didn't have much of anything. But she did have a few cans of condensed milk and some turtle eggs. Why not make a custard? A lesser woman would have laughed at the thought. But this is Susie King Taylor we're talking about. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. That was her mantra. She repeated it over and over throughout her life. So she did what she'd always done. Make it work. It turned out that the turtle egg custard was a hit. Because, well, who doesn't love turtle eggs and a little spoiled milk? And perhaps that's why, despite all the hardship and the bigotry, Susie King Taylor became so intellectually dominant. Her brain didn't go into autodrive. No, let me rephrase that. Her brain couldn't go into autodrive. They wouldn't let her. Even though that's how so many of us operate, the system one thinking, the kind of thinking that makes quick assumptions, gets lazy, or forms stereotypes. The micro-behavior today of writing is just one small way to bust that up by squeezing out just a little more understanding and a lot less impulse. Writing embraces the deliberate thinking in a world that wants you to think faster and without depth. Nobody wants that. What we want is to grow. What we want is to become better, to have the wherewithal to do what Taylor could do. To show how much service and good we can do for our own selves, for each other. Right you are, Susie King Taylor. Right you are. <laughs>